Welcome to South Carolina Launch's CEO podcast, where we hear from CEOs on their entrepreneur experience. Well, welcome to another episode of the SC Launch CEO podcast. I'm Lee McElwinnon, an investment manager with South Carolina Research Authority. Our guest today is Joshua Sneed, uh, CEO and founder of Rainwalk Technologies. Welcome, Josh, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Our pleasure. Well, why don't we uh, we'll start with some um, some easy, uh, easy, I guess, um, balls across the plate. I just walk us through the story and the journey of Rainwalk kind of with your company, what you do, your history, mission and vision and where you want to take the company. Yeah, absolutely. So we took a bit of a winding road, uh, especially in the early days of the company uh, when I had worked with my co-founder Tong Wu for many years. Uh, we worked at several jobs together, you know, both of them here in South Carolina, first with T-Cube Solutions uh, and then with Capgemini after that acquisition. And so Tong was the tech lead of the team. I was the business lead. We worked together for several years and we always knew we wanted to start a company with each other, but we didn't really know what it was going to be. Uh, so we continue to cross paths here and there professionally. Uh, but finally, in the end of 2018, we finally pulled the trigger and actually started a company together. So initially, that company was going to be a peer-to-peer -peer auto insurance company uh, on a blockchain. Uh, so this was uh, back 2018, before NFTs really started to get big and all that. But uh, there were a few things that caused, we spent about six months in the end of 2018, early 2019, really investing in some time and effort into evaluating that opportunity. Uh, really cool, a little bit avant-garde though for regulators. Uh, you know, insurance regulation is, uh, is a big barrier to a lot of, you know, some of the newer, crazier ideas that you might be looking to implement in insurance. And so regulators were not that fond of anything cryptocurrency related at that time. Uh, and the whole peer-to-peer -peer idea was not exactly new to insurance, but it's still a bit out there um, and really only used in niche contexts. So, but as part of that package, we were pitching a renters and a pet insurance product bundled in. So we were going to sell this whole bundle of auto renters and pet insurance, and we were going to sell them to digital natives, to, to young millennials. And so, uh, yeah, that... There wasn't a whole lot of demand either from investors or in the broader market for sales partners for another auto insurance company or for another renter's insurance company. Yeah. But time and time again, as I was pitching Rainwalk to investors and different partners, the pet insurance thing really stuck with them. So like, you know, I was trying to pitch all three of these things and I was pitching the peer to peer thing as well as clever and innovative. But really what stuck was the pet insurance idea. They had been talking about how this is a product they've heard a little bit about for years and years, but they've really been surprised that they've not seen a bigger market penetration from it. And so, you know, pet insurance ended up sticking. I was like, Tong, I think, you know, the, this piece of our company is getting way more attention and like positive feedback than anything else. I think, I think we might be a pet insurance company now. <laughs> So how, with, with the idea of pet insurance, what, is it, was it unique just about the fact that the insurance for pets or was it the business model or how you're actually gonna roll this out in the, the channel? What, what kind of got you excited about it? Yeah, so uh, the, some of the key issues were that there are a lot of pet insurance companies out there, or I'm sorry, there's a lot of insurance companies out there 
a lot of insurance agents, and even pet retail companies. There's a bunch of people out there who want to offer a pet health insurance product to their customers. Many of these people know that their, their customers are pet parents. They love their pets. They spend a lot of money on pet health care. And pet health insurance is a financial tool explicitly meant to address that. Here's the problem, though. Every single one of those companies don't want to spin up their whole own entire pet insurance program like that. That's a lot of work just for them to offer it to only their clientele. And so really what we found an opportunity with at Rainwalk is we're, we're not really the underwriter. We're really a pet health insurance platform that it quickly connects a whole bunch of different people to a single pet insurance offering. So now instead of 10 different home insurance companies needing to spin up their own pet health insurance division, instead Rainwalk's platform really acts as the pet insurance division for them. And we just plug and play with them. And so we did start with uh, homeowners insurance companies and auto insurance companies. Like my background and Tong's background was in insurance. And so that was really our comfort zone, I'd say, when we started out of the gate. But really, as the company continued to grow, we found a lot of opportunities, even outside of home insurance and auto insurance, things like employee benefits, adoption shelters and rescues, pet retailers, many of these other kinds of channels where they're like, hey, our, our customers are really interested in this too, but we don't really get this insurance thing. Like it's a big, weird, complicated world. And so Rainwalk's platform really found a great fit in being able to make it really accessible for these for these companies uh, with existing customer bases to really get a pet health insurance product into their hands. And so we kind of, you know, it, it took us a, it took us a little bit of time to get there, but uh, you know, me and Tom have pets. We love pets. Um, I love my pets, but uh, we really came from it uh, from a different perspective. We were, we were pitching something else entirely different. Uh, and it was really, it was really the market that told us what was a value and what was not. And so, uh, yeah, and it, and it, and, the, and the market was right. I'd say one of the best decisions we made really early on in the company was whether or not we thought it was a good idea. Put a little bit less credibility into that, and put more credibility into what the real world is actually telling you. Because um, I think, yeah, that I think that ended up being an awesome early, very formative decision for us in our company, and it has really paid dividends to kind of put our own opinions on the back burner a little bit and just listen to what you know, customers and partners and investors are telling you, um, not all of it's right. <laughs> Occasionally they give you some yeah. bad advice, but just being able to be open to it and really process and synthesize all that together, I think really took us in the right direction. Um, we weren't sure at the time, but looking back now in hindsight, it's, it's really clear to see how being smart about the feedback that you take really will take you so far. Well, I see. It's a great point because it's uh, it's smart that you you listened, um, right? That you went through your pivot um, about what you thought you were going to be able to actually take to the market, and uh, and end up taking something that was a bit um, a bit unique, even though it's pretty resilient when you look at what the market and uh, the attention that we pay to our pets. Um, what would you what would you say when and just taking this as where it's a software company combined with insurance? What were one of some of your greatest challenges that you you faced, and then how did you try to really overcome those? Yeah, so um, there is the the perennial uh, insure tech question, which is what does insure tech really mean? Is it 
an insurer that just is really tech heavy in the way that they do stuff? Or is it a tech company that actually supports insurance entities and sells and licenses software to them? Uh, I would honestly say that Rainwalk kind of, we swapped back and forth between what role we really play with these partners. You know, are they just going to license a pet insurance platform and run it themselves? Or is Rainwalk going to, you know, offer it more as like a software as a service style? Um, ultimately, what we decided to do was just meet our customers where they were at, meet our partners where they were at. And so we tried to prescribe to all of those different distribution partners, like pet retailers, you know, insurance companies. We tried to prescribe them something that seemed great on the surface. But the problem was that, you know, we tried to say, hey, buy the software from us and then you do it. The problem is that's not how they interacted with any of their other product providers. So um, it was just, it ended up being new. The sales cycles ended up being really long because we were having to explain a brand unique style of relationship with partners that they don't have elsewhere in their company. Yeah. And so, and those conversations ended up taking a long time. You know, we get mired down uh, and I just became worried that we never actually get to the finish line with some of these conversations. So what we did and what we do now still to this day is we walk in and we say, okay, what, what's a similar relationship that you have with existing partners? We're just going to copy that. It becomes a lot more digestible. It becomes a lot more straightforward. And then I tell them, don't worry about the structure. Don't worry about insurance stuff. Don't worry about the regulatory stuff. I will take care of all of that on the back. You don't even have to worry about it. And so what that means is in practice, there are a few nuances to our business's back office that Rainwalk manages on behalf of our partners. But my main goal was to just give them an experience where they didn't need to worry about any of that. Because my biggest barrier is just, you know, my biggest competitor is not someone else coming and offering a similar product or service. It's them just deciding to not do it. And so anything I can do to make their life easier as partners to offer a pet health insurance product to their clients uh, we just kind of show up and mirror that. So there is a lot of complex insurance mumbo jumbo, but no. what we decided to do was put all of that as a man behind the curtain experience. Uh, and it's still to this day changes a little bit, right? Each one of our partners has a little bit of a different uh, way that we conquer that insurance regulatory, you know, piece. But uh, all in all, we're, we're aiming to provide a turnkey plug and play solution as close as we can. Uh, to anyone that we partner with. Well, it's a great, I mean, it's a great model because it, as you're, these are your channel partners who are taking your product to market and the easier you make it uh, for them to be able to get onboarded and integrated in with your product, the, yep. uh, the easier it is for those. What, is there anything that you, that you would say when you look at your secret sauce, kind of your, uh, your compelling, what would, what would you call that when you, when you got to the market? Yeah. So the, one of the earliest things that we found out we were good at was the ability to quickly and cost effectively deploy technology solutions. So uh, one of the value adds that we provide to our partners is that we can accept a whole different array of stuff. Like their infrastructure could be a mess. I can integrate with it. They could be clean. I can integrate with it. They could be on-prem. They could be cloud-based. You know, they could be using third-party software. We can integrate with it with little to no marginal extra effort. So that versatility is very unusual in the insurance technology space. 
the traditional mode of deploying tech has always been to handcraft solutions for each individual uh, for each individual use case. The problem is it becomes very rigid, very expensive to upgrade and very expensive to switch. And so the where the rubber meets the road for our partners is if you wanted to if you wanted to partner with you know nationwide for example and try to offer their pet insurance product it take you about four or five months just to get that digital integration done for rainwalk it takes about four weeks so when you think wow. about the incremental effort required to actually participate in this market like they'd laugh you out of the room if you try to tell them it's going to take them five months of dev time just to offer this kind of extra ancillary product but you tell them it's four weeks they're like oh we can slip that in at the end of july so that's one of the key things that we recognize very early on. Part of that is also cost, right? Like many of our competitors have spent millions and millions of dollars trying to build what we have built already. And we've been able to build it much faster at a fraction of the cost. Um, and for a startup, being able to be that cost efficient is huge, right? A lot of times it can be tough to raise a boatload of cash really early on before you've got that MVP ready to go. So I think that can make or break, you know, you think about our sales model is very tech heavy in addition to the back office being very tech heavy. Yeah. If your sales rely on these digital integrations being done and in place, that can be, that can be a lot of expensive technology to build before you really start selling, you know, before you start selling anything. And so I would say one of the earliest differentiators that we noticed about ourselves was tech. But since then, it really is that, white glove hands-on customer service you know like ultimately at the end of the day if if your partners feel engaged and empowered and like you have their customers best interests at heart and you're both working towards a common mission of you know making sure that their clients pets needs are taken care of that really builds a bond that is hard to be replaced many of our competitors in this space when they're looking for ways to sell and distribute pet health insurance products through alternative channels or through channel partnerships. Yeah. Uh, many of them are very transactional uh, and it leaves a weird taste in people's mouths because these, like our pets aren't transactional, right? This is, we're talking about the health of what feels like our children. These are fur babies to a lot of people. <laughs> and so in, if your whole, if your whole company relies on servicing your clients well, yeah. And then you talk to this big stuffy old insurance company who just treats your pet like a car or like a home. And, you know, they're very ones and zeros and they're very laconic about it. Mm. Um, we find that a lot of our partnerships have really blossomed just because they felt that human touch, that engagement that they really don't get from your traditional insurance entities that really own uh, a lot of the pet insurance space today. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point that you're making where you're treating them. It's a health product. Yeah. So whether you're treating them as a, as I mean, they're an important part of your family. So that comes across in terms of how of the customer service it sounds like that you offer as one of your core value propositions. Yeah, absolutely. What about, the, so on the tech side, since you're a, a tech company at heart, when you built your MVP, does the product today look anything like it did the product where you first got it going. I'm interested sort of in that story and, and what advice and counsel you can give software companies. Yeah. Out there. Oh man. Uh, I would say not really at all. Um, no. okay. <laughs> what the, the, 
the very first dollar that our company made ran on tech that I would say now has been completely ripped up and replaced. Okay. But the but it's uh, the original was really messy. Um, the original was not clean. The original had a lot of manual elements in it, but we kind of knew that going in. You know, I would say we have had periods of our company's life where it was messy and unintentionally messy. And we had other periods where it was intentionally messy. Like we made a strategic decision. We're like, hey, we know this is going to be messy, but it's going to be on purpose. And here's our plan to clean it up later. And I would say that, um, you know, being able to have a clear vision of how you're going to make it not messy anymore is really important. You know, our very first iteration, we were just in such a panic to get to market and we felt so rushed that I think we probably should have and could have done better planning. But I think the long story short is, yeah, it's always going to change. I, I wouldn't, you know, I'd never really let that bother us per se, you know, like I, I found that if you let yourself get too product focused, you'll just never actually release anything <laughs> when you'll just spend forever and a whole lot of dollars uh, working on features and stuff that may or may not be as high value as just giving that offering to your customers, you know, because uh, not every feature in your software platform has the same value to those users, right? There are some that are higher value and some that are lower. And so uh, I think not letting yourself get too caught up on that full scope of work, you know, just kind of knowing exactly where the line is of like, okay, here at this point, even though it's not ideal, it's still better than having nothing, <laughs> which is what my customers have today, or it's still better than my competitors, which is what they have today um, was big. And we've been very iterative, you know, we, we, we break work into really small chunks. We do those chunks really fast. Uh, and that's been key as well, because I, I don't really know exactly what our product should or shouldn't look like six months from now, but I do know, you know, what we need in the next week or two. Uh, and the last point that I'll mention is we've always been super laser focused on sales and business development. You know, and there, there are a lot of features that we could do that are more about efficiency or even accuracy. But I think the main thing that anyone is looking for you to prove as a startup is that you're solving a pain point. And the best way to prove that you're solving a pain point is for someone to pay you something, even right. if it's not a lot, but they're actually paying you for it. And so for us, that resulted in just, you know, everyone, including tech, being laser focused on sales and features that will sell. <laughs> and so I think that's served us very, very well. And I think of the times where we have spent a lot of money on tech, and maybe I thought it wasn't the greatest investment is because we let ourselves get sidetracked by, you know, nice to haves or flashy features that were cool, but didn't exactly move the needle on what customers were willing to pay for um, and whether or not they were actually going to sign up. So it's always a balancing act. You know, it's going to be messy probably for a long time <laughs> as any startup, but I'm definitely always in favor of shipping first. Um, also, if, you know, there is a lot of fear, you don't want to ship too early. You want to maintain the customer relationships and make sure that they're going to be happy with what you actually send them. But you know, there is room to have conversations and say, hey, this is going to be messy. We know it's going to be messy. Would you be willing to help us pilot or alpha this thing or even beta this thing? Yeah. And just know that if your answer is no, that is completely okay. I will not put it into your systems until it's clean and ready to go. And I'll go find someone else to help me beta this. But um, 
you know, the quicker you shove it into production, the quicker it breaks, the quicker you can fix it. You know, there's so many things that you can't sit there on a whiteboard and anticipate everything that will go wrong. The quickest way to get something live is to just shove it into production and let it break. And so you got to be very careful about who you do that with. You know, you don't want to go to your biggest, most strategic client who's, right. you know, really failure sensitive. Uh, you don't want to do it with them. Uh, but the sooner you can find someone to shove it into production with and let it break and then fix that, the the quicker you'll get it deployed. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a mess, though. There's no perfect solution. We all have to, you know, chop our way through the woods, but it's it's always a little bit chaotic early on and it's never as clean as we'd like it to be. <laughs> well, it sounds like you you learned a lot through the process, so that rather than trying to build something that's perfect, build something that you believe works and meets your customers' needs and then get it out there. Yeah, and they're really the ultimate judge, right? Like, even if I think it's the greatest thing ever, like if they don't, then, then that's all that matters. And then the inverse is also true. I may think this is the dumbest looking thing ever, but if they if they find a lot of value in it and their employees love it and it makes their lives easier, then, then who am I to say you can't have it? You know, like that, that, that's really what we're here for is to help serve those clients and those customers. And so that feedback is should be our guiding light i think most of the time sometimes we got to tell them what they need to hear but a lot of the times i think we should listen <laughs> uh, so that was very wise words from because uh, that way you're customer driven so there's no, no better way to run the company right um, yeah my background is in sales so like <laughs> one of my biggest pain points as your traditional sales guy at a software company is that i always go back to my company and say hey the client will buy if they just do xyz yeah. Um, and my company would be like, no, we're not doing that. And so I'd have to go back to the client, explain at least now um, with founder led sales, like a lot of startups are like, I can sit there right in the room with their CEO and say, Hey, what do you need my software to do for you to actually pay for this thing? And that guy knows or gal uh, knows if, you know, if I agree that these three features will be in there and that's what they need to buy the software, they know that I can go get that done. And so for me, I think that's very empowering that's the, you know, the kind of influence that I think a founder has over, over that sales cycle that, you know, maybe a traditional business development rep doesn't have. And I think that's a really powerful tool to help get those early sales in a startup's life. Yeah. Well, as a fellow salesperson, I can, I can absolutely identify with that. So you're selling <laughs> down the right path. What we, what, with the fact that you've got an insurance background, technology background, how did you build your business acumen to really understand about what does it take to run a business as an entrepreneur? Can you kind of share um, where you feel like you, you built that, um, what your challenges were? And then the last question I'll kind of end with is, what has the community been able to do to help you with uh, on that side? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm a relatively young founder. I feel like I ran out of my own personal expertise and knowledge pretty fast <laughs> founding a uh, founding a company. I mean, there's just so much stuff that you have to get right and that you have to know. And I think that was healthy for me though, because very early on, it caused me and my co-founder to not trust ourselves and to build us a really strong network of experienced professionals who've been there before. Yeah. So I'd say the number one way that we've learned and is just been, you know, you stack the deck with mentors, advisors. Some of them I may talk to once a quarter. Some of them I may be on a text conversation with, you know, every other day. And so, 
you know, they're all really useful and really valuable though. Some of them are subject matter experts where if I have an accounting question, for example, I can go to them and ask. Others are just generalists, you know, founders themselves or CEOs of different companies that like what we're building and like us as a founding team. And so I, I cannot overestimate how much we've leaned on those mentors. You know, many of them we've met in and around South Carolina and organizations like SCRA, um, you know, the incubator, GroCo. Uh, I think one of the most valuable pieces of that is their bridges to those kinds of people. Um, yeah. And man, we lean on that so much still to this day. And even some of the people that we know who are founders further along than us, it sounds like they still do that too. So it sounds like that's a process that never actually stops. <laughs> um, but then I, I, I will say that the second thing that's taught us the most is just doing it and failing. I mean, we, we've definitely made a lot of mistakes over the years. I think one thing that we've always tried to do is like, admit that we're gonna make mistakes. You just wanna to try to hedge the downside as much as possible. Maybe that's the insurance, you know, hat talking, you know, being a risk manager, but you know, you're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna learn from those mistakes, but really our goals are to just try to minimize the damage of the mistakes that we make. You know, if your business plan requires you to execute flawlessly as a founding team, uh, you're doomed to fail, right? No, no one's gonna execute flawlessly. Now, if your business plan has a little bit of room for error and a whole lot of risk management strategies and downside mitigations, uh, I think you're gonna, you know, that that helps me sleep a lot at night knowing we've got plan Bs and plan Cs and plan Ds um, for everything. And so, uh, but you do, you learn a lot. You learn a lot from the failures, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a bummer thing to say, but <laughs> I would say that you do really learn by doing and, you know, some of the things that we've done and learned the most from are the things that we've messed up. Well, I mean, failure is a great teacher. <laughs> There's no doubt yeah. about it. Bit of a painful take, teacher, but it's definitely a good one. <laughs> a good teacher. Yeah, certainly being an entrepreneur is, is one that failure has to be a, a friend um, as well as just a teacher, right? <laughs> right. What we, so we talked a little bit about um, the community, kind of what, what we as a community, um, fellow founders and others, SCRA in particular, what role do you think we've been able to play in really helping you on your journey and, and anything that, uh, any comments you have, suggestions for improvement, et cetera? Yeah, so um, I had heard about SCRA even before we founded the company. Um, you know, gone to a few different events that SCRA was in and around. Uh, so that exposure really helped, you know, uh, it, it's one of the first places you think to go as a brand new founder when you have that footprint around. Also, it being South Carolina focused, I think you get a lot more uh, FaceTime, you know, than you might with national organizations. It can be difficult to even stand out at all um, as a brand new founder trying to, you know, get help, get that mentorship. Uh, so I would say that the very first thing is, as a brand new founder, I was able to, you know, I was able to pitch SCRA. I think the first time I ever pitched anyone in and around SCRA was back in 2019. And so, um, one of the key things that it provided for us was a lot of practice. You know, one, of, like I had never really pitched anyone before, definitely not in the context of raising money. Um, but what you, what we really needed early in our life was just practice, you know, at bats, and it can be hard to get at bats when you're when you're that young as a founding team and you know you don't have it all figured out. You're just trying to get some practice under your belt and some feedback. And SCRA and and 
was one of the you know earliest people who gave us an at bat i would say to be able to pitch and not only that you know many people if you pitch them and you know it doesn't go well then they're never going to talk to you again right yeah, but but scra i mean we had an opportunity to repitch and repitch and repitch a, a few different times sometimes just for practice sometimes for for some real meaningful engagement but uh and not only that, being able to talk to yourself, Lee, and a lot of the other just individuals in the organization, even beyond the organization itself, but the individuals that SCRA and SE Launch employees have are really engaged, mission-driven, much like the organization. Uh, they provide a lot of advice, a lot of feedback, a lot of connections as well. You know, a lot of it can take some time to get going, right? So some of those earliest connections lead to the most downstream benefits. You know, Lee connects me to two or three people who connect me to two or three more people. And next thing I know, I've got a branch on this, you know, networking tree, uh, 15 to 20 names long, just because Lee and I got coffee that one day at Inda, for example. So uh, I wouldn't underestimate the snowball effect of that. And I think where a lot of founders might get lost early in their founding, you know, we almost did early in our founding uh, career is it can be a bit lonely, right? You haven't built that network yet. You don't have those mentors yet. You don't have that feedback loop with smart and educated people in your industry that you can collect high value info from. So, you know, some of those earliest and most formative formative days as a South Carolina startup, I would say that SCRA and its members were, were there and involved top to bottom, right? Not just, not just yourself, Lee, and not just, you know, associates that an analyst that help out, but also all the way up to board members, you know, like everyone's helpful top to bottom. And That's uh, so yeah, it it awesome. It takes a, um, what's the old adage? It takes a village to- It does, <laughs> it really does take a village to raise a startup, uh, yeah. absolutely. Well, you know, along those last, I guess, last question I, I would have is when you think about the, that, that fact of, I mean, we have a part of being able to, uh, to help you be successful as a founder. And, and we certainly, uh, we really focus on that, on that effort. We're also not alone. So the, you, you were really, you did a great job with finding other resources. For example, I'll pick on Techstars as an example. So you were one of the few yeah. that we know that went to Techstars in Austin. You've got white combinators. others. What role do you see uh, organizations like that play in the success of a founder? Yeah. So uh, if I were to ever found a second company, I don't, or if I, or if I'm a repeat founder, then I think maybe the value of those organizations is perhaps a little bit less. But when you think about those resources that you really need to found anything, a lot of times as a repeat founder, you've got that infrastructure in place already. But as a first time founder, I, I felt all of those programs were incredibly valuable. It's always a little bit scary because many of them can be dilutive in some way. So many of them might take a, per, a few percent of your company in exchange to participate. And that can be a bit scary to do, uh, to give up ownership in, that in your company. But uh, for us, you know, we've always had such a mentor and advisor heavy strategy as a founding team yeah. that uh, I knew we were going to get a lot of value out of it. You know, it's not just the value that they give us, but like towards the end of those programs, they were like annoyed about how much I was leveraging their resources <laughs> and their support. They're like, oh, Josh again, huh? And so I was going to make sure that we got the value out of the program that we needed to get out of it. And many of those programs like that, like many of the members like it when you take that initiative and you're that proactive. I think if, if you're going to do those kinds of programs, they can absolutely rocket ship your company, but you want to make sure you really invest the time and the energy to get what you can out of it. 
and you're right. Eventually you do build, you know, eventually you do build, you got a cohort here, you've got a cohort there. Um, and it, the whole community enriches each other. Right. So even the ability now, like we went through Techstars Austin, there's have been some introductions that we've been able to make from Columbia people to Austin and from Austin back to Columbia people. And so it's not only helping Rainwalk and me and Tong personally, but it's also helping us contribute to the broader, to the broader community. And, you know, I, I do think that those are win-win propositions uh, for, for everyone involved. So really valuable programs would highly recommend everyone. You know, if you're a first time founder, I would highly recommend you explore those. Um, and really, you know, if you're willing and ready to get the most out of it, I think your value will, will rapidly outstrip the, uh, the cost of, of, of participating. Well, they're great, great resources. And, and hopefully, uh, if you don't mind, I may pass some along to you that are asking for counsel when, uh, when, those, things, when those opportunities arise. Yeah, of course. Happy to help. And then, man, warm intros. Everyone's always said it, you know, warm intros are just make the world go round. Like the, the amount of effectiveness that you can get just from someone that you mutually know with the person you're trying to get in touch with, your response rate goes from like three to 5% if you're cold calling to like 90 to 95%. Yeah. Uh, and it just sets you up so successfully. And that works for investors, for clients, for employees. I still ping the network of, I still ping the network of founders and partners and mentors and advisors when we're making hiring decisions, right? Yeah. Like, Hey, you know, we're looking for a product manager. Do you know anyone in your network? And, you know, most people won't, but I don't need 10 product managers. Right? I just need one. And right. chances are the bigger your network is, you know, there's going to be someone somewhere who's a good candidate. And that's a candidate you just got for free, right? You didn't have to, you didn't have to lift a finger or pay a dollar to get a, a vouched for warm intro to a candidate. So the, yeah, no, never underestimate the value of those warm intros. You know, I would yeah. stack the deck with as many network members and advisors and mentors as you can handle uh, because, you know, you never know who's going to actually pay off huge dividends in the long run. Amen. That's uh, well, well said. Um, well, Josh, I cannot thank you enough for, for taking the time to spend with us. This is, yeah, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being our guest, our guest today, and it's great hearing the Wayne Walk story. We look forward to seeing your success in the future. Yeah, we're just getting started. 2022 is going to be a big year for us, but we're really, really excited about the future. Uh, I'm really thankful for SCRA and SC Launch and you know everyone in the South Carolina community has really helped us out along the way. Hey, we appreciate it. Thanks again, Josh. Awesome. Thanks, Lee.